Living uh, today, uh, it's easy for us to live with the illusion of control, that we truly are the masters of our faith, that we're in control of our, just not just our destinies, but uh, everything uh, about the here and the now, that we are in control. And you can, uh, a good example, just uh, you can take out your phone at any point and you can understand that there's an app for about everything in the world. There's an app to find a date, an app to pick a restaurant, an app to choose the route to navigate to that restaurant. There's an app to select the wine, an app to rate the food, an app to count the calories, an app to navigate you back home, an app to break up with that person that you went out with. There's really an app for everything, and it gives us what I'm talking about this morning, the illusion of control, that we ourselves can point and do things and control things. Daniel said it a minute ago. I said it last week. It's, it's a truth. It's really a painful truth. The longer you live, the more you realize it is true. Plenty of empirical data in your life and mine to show us that to live is to lose. Life is full of loss. Sickness is a loss of health. Unemployment is a loss of work. Uh, divorce is a loss of relationship. Betrayal is a loss of friendship. Um, injury is a loss of ability. Death, of course, is a loss of life. I bear on me a couple of scars, uh, actual, literal scars on my body. You can't see them, but if you got close enough to me and I, and I let you, you could touch and feel them. I've got a, a scar on my head, on my noggin, and one on my knee. When I was eight years old, I was with Mike and Tony Perkins in our neighborhood in Green Acres. We were on Persimmon Drive. We got a phone call. There were no cell phones back then, of course, but we got a phone call at that home. And we were notified that a dear old lady down the street that we loved, we loved her grandkids, and she had a cool house that they let us play in, Miss Prohaska. And Miss Prohaska needed some help lifting some things and doing some things. We went to, to help her. So Mike and Tony and I got on our bikes and we rode toward her, and I didn't realize it. There was a big pothole, and my bike went into that pothole, and I flipped, y'all, and I'm telling you, I fell hard. It was an unabated, super hard fall right on my head, not my noggin and my knee. It was the first time I'd ever felt that kind of pain. It was the first time I'd ever seen blood coming out of my body like that. It was the first time I'd ever been to the emergency room. Now, guess what was the lesson that I learned that day? That's right. Don't help people, right? <laughs> the lesson I learned that day, you never know that I'm frail, that I'm vulnerable and I'm fragile. And as a little guy, I'm easily broken. When I was little, I used to think, I can't wait till I get big. I won't be so frail and so fragile. <laughs> yeah, right. The other lesson, there was a secondary lesson that I learned that day, potholes are bad. And I, I grew up and moved to Jackson. Life, to live rather, is to experience loss. And we see it in ourselves. Don't you hate preachers that say there's two kind of people in the world? But there are some of us who, sickness, when it comes to that loss, divorce, betrayal, loss of job, loss of relationship, just challenges, just we're like the tennis ball. We bounce back. 
But some of us, when it comes to sickness or injury or relationship betrayal or divorce, a loss of a dream, some of us are more like that hard-boiled egg. <laughs> Y'all know we share this space, right, with Woodland Hills. I wouldn't be dropping an actual egg on this. Couldn't do that. But the question is an obvious one, but it'd probably be good. Probably be good for you maybe to answer today. Is which characterizes your life? When Jesus taught that story in Matthew chapter 7 about storms come, there's two kinds of people, the foolish and the wise. And what's the difference between the foolish and the wise? It's not standard aptitude, scholastic achievement. It's not IQ or ability to comprehend knowledge. Basically, it's what? One who lives wise and one lives foolish. But the foolish one is the one who hears the word and doesn't do it. The wise one is the one who hears the word and does it. But storms come to which one? Storms come, ready for this? You know this, right? Storms come to both houses. Life, Jesus would teach us, is not about storm avoidance. How many of you want to avoid storms? How many of you want to you know, not roll out the red carpet to pain, difficulty, and suffering in your life? Man, you don't want to do that. We looked last week about the Father of all mercy, the God of all comfort. And you know, when you're in a hard time, do you pray for comfort? No. You pray that God would get you out of that situation. You may pray for comfort for other people who are going through that. But for you and me, when we're in a hard place, we pray for the alleviation. We pray for storm avoidance. And as we study this ancient letter from 2 Corinthians, Paul, who used to be Saul of Tarsus, became Paul of where? Paul of everywhere. He was Paul of Philippi, and Paul of Thessalonica, Paul of Berea, Paul of the many coastal cities, including uh, Corinth. And Paul spent on his first, second, and third missionary journeys, he spent time in those towns or cities. He spent most of his time in the two largest cities, Corinth, the, the capital of the Roman province, and Ephesus, the capital of Asia. Not the Asia continent where China and all that is, but Asia, another Roman province. Ephesus and Corinth. And he wrote some powerful letters. And to the church at Corinth, he wrote two. And we are, over these six to seven weeks, just looking at this second letter that he penned. And we're calling it, the resilient life. Because Paul, he bounced back. Man, he had every reason in the world to just go thud, to not be able to get back up. Paul was, we looked at last week, Paul was, in Philippi, he was flogged. In Thessalonica, he was threatened by a riotous mob. You ever had a riotous mob come after you? Ever had to flee town in the darkness of night? He found safety in another city. He found friends like Jason and Aquila and Priscilla, a married couple, and many other friends. He found among his closest companions uh, men and women that he could not live without. And he went from there. And he gives us an account. In fact, if you'll read later, we may look at this in one of the ensuing weeks. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul pins this autobiographical sketch of all the things that had happened to him on his journeys. And he said it was great labor, imprisonment. I was beaten. How bad were you beaten, Paul? To the point of death. Five times um, I, I was hit with lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Some of you can say that about college. Um, he said, I, three times I was shipwrecked. One time 
I was just adrift at the sea. I was on faraway journeys. And Paul goes on to write it. He begins in this portion of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Read it later. But he, he begins to sound like Dr. Seuss. I was in danger. I was on danger, danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from the sea, danger from the cities, danger in the wilderness, danger from false prophets. I was in all these dangers. And there was toil and hardship. There was hunger and thirst. There was cold and exposure to the elements. And we read this morning, Daniel led us before the message, looking as we stood together to consider 2 Corinthians 4. And Paul says what? He says we're afflicted on every side, but we're, we're not crushed. We're perplexed, right? We're perplexed. But God is with us. We're, we're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're beaten down, but we're not destroyed. As I've studied this letter over this past month, in this particular passage, I believe that Paul is, is stealing imagery from the athletic world. And at the time, this is the word for the day, Paul could be referencing the Pan-Hellenic Games, where back in the day, it was 6700 BC, where these games, there was discus and javelin, there was armor wrestling, like with suits on, there was like the Greco-Roman wrestling that we know now, there was uh, boxing, there were track and field events. Corinth was one of the cities like Adelphia and Olympia that hosted these games. They were tribute, shout outs to the gods of Zeus and Apollo and others. And Paul is using this athletic imagery because in all of those sports, most of those sports, there's a great likelihood that you're going to get what? You're going to get struck down. You think if you enter into boxing or wrestling or armor wrestling, are you not going to get struck down? I mean, you're, you, you realize you're going to take some blows. Man, when I rode my bike with Mike and Tony Perkins that day to go help Miss Prohaska and hit that pothole and open my body up and I almost bled to death, I didn't see that coming, right? But here's what I know. When the loss, when we lose in life, we're so unprepared for it. Paul is saying to us, yet yeah, these things are so real. Being struck down, being persecuted, being perplexed, being afflicted on all sides. But there's hope there. We don't have to be struck down. We can realize that God is with us. Look down if you have an open Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And there's a phrase in that first verse that Daniel read for us. The expression is this. We do not lose heart. Again, if you have an open Bible or tablet or phone, look now from 2 Corinthians 4, 1 to verse 16, chapter 4, verse 16. What does he say? We do not lose heart. And in those two passages, I would, if I were you, if you had a Bible that you can write in and doggone it, write in ours. Write the word by we do not lose heart in verse 1 and we do not lose heart in verse 16. Write the one singular word, hope. Neil Clark Warren, the founder of eHarmony, don't act like you don't know who I'm talking about. <laughs> Neil Clark Warren, the founder of eHarmony, spent, has to this date spent a good 50 plus years. He's an old man. He spent 50 plus years studying and counseling with married couples. He says that one of his very eminently practical goals when he's with a couple, particularly a marriage that's in distress, a really troubled marriage, he says that one of his practical goals really is to just allow the couple to see a 10% improvement spike. 
And the idea there is just a little bit of improvement can give people hope. Just a little. Just a spark, just a slither, just a slight little bit of improvement. And hope can enter in. It's true of marriage. It's true of churches. You know, as a pastor, I can delegate a lot of responsibility here. Ministry programs, someone else can monitor, monitor financing and run the systems, handle our policies and procedures to make sure that we're being a healthy, honest, generous, transparent church where people are loved and cared for and people are reached with the gospel. Someone else can oversee that and do a much better job than me. But one job that I cannot delegate is being the hope person. Can't give that away. One of my mentors, who's really a preaching mentor, says on, on Sundays, on weekends, when you stand up, you're really doing two primary things. He says, don't, don't try to hit a home run every time. And you guys know I, I really don't try to hit a home run, do I? He says, sometimes you're just going to get a single, maybe a double or triple. But always speak truth and always give beaten up people hope. The broken and beaten up the humbled and humiliated, the defeated, the demeaned, those who are confused and wondering like sheep, and who is that? It's you. It's me. But give people, give people hope. We do not lose heart. Do you know anybody who has? I know a young man out of state, seminary, graduated, killed it. Great grades, promising future, went to work for a church. I had the opportunity to see him three or four times a year, talk to him, double, triple that. And I look at him and I realize, man, something's happened. He's lost heart. I know someone out of state in the ministry who leads counseling, leads an outdoor adventure. Impacting lives, families, people drawn to it like a moth to a flame, growing, burgeoning ministry, resources coming in. A couple of years ago, a scandal hit. A camp counselor connects with a 16-year-old. She gets pregnant. My friend is scrambling on the phone to call every board member and key donor. Oh, it was going so good. It was going so well. And I tell you today, because of this, he's lost heart. If you look back up to the first part, because I want to preach this passage in context, Paul's talking about, he's talking about losing heart or not losing heart in what? In the ministry. He's talking about in the ministry. It says it in the first couple of verses. In the ministry, what? Of the ministry of mercy. Who is given the ministry of mercy? It's not just me. It's not just the counselors and the seminarians and the pastors and the teachers and the administrators and leaders. It's everyone who says, I want to shine for Jesus. Everyone who says, hey, I believe in the gospel. I believe in the mercy of God. The mercy of God has touched my life and I want other people to know it. I've been given this ministry of mercy. This morning, are you on the edge? How is your heart? Do you feel like you've lost heart? I had you write the word hope in. I want to share with you what I call hope detectors. You see if you can relate this. I'm going to give you three hope detectors, and then I'm going to give you some hope bandits. You see, just as our country economically has an, an index of leading economic indicators, some really smart people 
people with different brain wiring that I have, they can look at certain things about the economy and tell us, are we in good shape or not? Are we losing? Are we winning? They can look at these indicators and tell us, well, there are indicators, there are detectors that tell me how I'm doing. Am I about to lose heart? The first thing for me is how do I greet the morning? How do I greet the morning? You know, increasingly there's more and more clinical research that says that anxiety and depression hits us harder in the morning. And maybe that's why in Lamentations 3, it says your mercies are new. What? Your mercies are new every morning. And I know that my hope quotient is low. I know that I could be dangerously close to losing heart if when my feet hit the floor in the morning, I'm overwhelmed. A second thing beyond just how I greet the morning is recovery time. Not too long ago, Susan and I went on a vacation. Some of you can relate to this, but we got back and I felt like I'd never been anywhere. Responsibilities had multiplied, difficulties had compounded. We went away to get rest and refreshment and it seemed like the opposite had occurred in my heart. A third thing is just my emotional response to people around me. When my hope was ebbing a couple of years ago, someone had called the church office and had requested to speak with me. I sat down with this woman that week and she, to my face, commended me. She told me some things that had encouraged her in the Lord and in small ways and very small measures how God had used me in her life. But can I tell you that I speculated going into that conversation that it was going to be painful? And what I thought was going to be painful was going to be positive. And it was hard for me not to cry with her that day. And when she left, I just really cried. And it showed me, maybe I'm closer back then, maybe I was closer to losing heart than I was willing to admit to anyone around me. Those are three hope detectors that I find in my own life. How about you? How is your heart? We were in Dallas this week, our staff and many of our elders, we were at Bent Tree Church and we heard some great speakers and one pastor from out west talked to us about Proverbs 4.23. We preached it here this summer. Guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life. Are you guarding your heart? You have to look at the little things. Those are three areas of my life that are hope detectors. Am I about to lose heart? There are hope bandits. Do you know that no conversation you have, not one single encounter with another person is emotionally neutral. Every encounter, every conversation, every interaction you have with someone will either fill you up a little bit with hope or it'll drain you a little bit. Or with some of you, it'll drain you an awful lot. But no conversation is neutral. Here are, through the years, I've listed, I want to list to you a few hope bandits. The first is the contrarian. There's no sound idea that they can't poke a hole in. They're ready to disagree with anything. Secondly, there's the alarmist. This person is really wired into the life of the church, and they are a lightning rod. Whatever there's criticism or maybe an area of concern, they're, they're the ones to tell you about it, and it's an alarmist tone. There's the critic. This is the person whose ministry it is to evaluate your ministry. They're self-appointed most of the time. And then there's the cynic. 
The cynic is the gift, the pro, it's the prophetic gift gone sour. I've said it before. I pray for our church and ask you to pray for our church that the most cynical people in churches are on church staffs. And I suspect that it's true. That's not true of Fonder and that's other churches. But I suspect that it's true because there's a gap between church leaders. Eugene Peterson calls it the perils of professional Christianity. There's a gap between our words and where our souls really are. And lastly, there's the hype machine. If I had time today, I would just show you that current McDonald's commercial, right? With the two guys, the two brothers and one guy, just, he's all hyped up about everything. Have y'all seen that? They're in this store and that store, and he's just hyped up about everything. He's trying to get his friend hyped up. And there are people, man, they don't speak the truth in love. They just kind of love you, but it's really flattery. They just tell you what you want to hear, and everything seems to be sky high. And these folks are kind of the emotional equivalent of an energy drink right? They bring you up high and then there's the crash and the burn. Now, here's what I want to say. To be proportionate, to be fair, I've got some of those in me. I can at times be the contrarian or the cynic or the alarmist or the critic. God knows at times I can be the hype machine where I need to tell the truth to our church and bring the word unadulterated and drop it, but choose a softer way or have an opportunity in my family or with friends I love and don't bring it like I need to bring it. And I end up giving empty flattery to people and leave them crashing and burning. But here's what the Lord's teaching me. By the way, when Paul is 2 Corinthians 11, you're gonna read it later and we'll look at it in a few weeks when Paul talks about all those things that I mentioned earlier. He says, oh, and on top of that, there's the daily pressure of my concern for the churches. And Paul knew in leading people, there would be problems. There would be problem people. There would be problems within us. And here's what God is teaching me. He's using some of you. He's teaching me that these people in many ways are me and these people are you. And these people need, I need to listen to them. I need to learn from them. And I need to love them, but I also need to limit myself around them. I have a friend. Let me ask you before I say this, how much time do you spend with the critics and the complainers versus the hopers and the doers? And I have a friend. I believe that every pastor needs a pastor. And I have a friend who's a pastor. And if you love this church and love me, you ought to thank God for this man because he, he's a good man. He's the best thinker I know. And when I need advice, almost of any sort, I call him, ministry and heart. And every time I call him, if I tell him something bad, he's never rocked by the bad. And when I tell him something good, he's never giddy about the good. He's just steady and he's just what I need. King David, David, I should say, before he was king, went through a tough point in his life and you wondered would he be resilient? Would he be the tennis ball? Would he, would he bounce back? And David went through a series of losses, losing his wife and his family, his best friend, Jonathan. He lost his role as the golden boy of Israel, and he was fleeing from King Saul. And there's this passage of Scripture. David lost all this, but look what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 22. In verse 2, every, and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you want to just love to lead that congregation? And he became captain over them. 
And there were with him about 400 men. He didn't lose everything. He had about 400 people in distress and debt and bitter in soul. But David, 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse 6. And David was greatly distressed. I love the subtlety of this. For the people spoke of stoning him. Because all the people were, there we go, here we go again, bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But here's the passage I want to point you to. For anyone maybe low on the currency of hope, close to losing heart, not being resilient, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Paul needed Titus. You won't really understand these letters, particularly First and Second Corinthians, if you don't understand the importance of Timothy and Titus and Silas and these people, men and women in his life. Paul needed them. Just like you need people. And just like I've confessed to you today, I need people. And while I believe I can learn from, listen to, and love everyone, I need to be careful because that bitter stuff can spread, can it? But ultimately, to preach the truth of God's word, to point people to Jesus, we got to get there. He strengthened himself in the Lord. Look, some of you are all about individuality, autonomy, independence, isolation. You've withdrawn. And the answer for you today is to have some people in your life. Some of you are losing heart and you're on leadership. You have people around you. You might be making a mistake in the proportion of people you're hanging out with. Maybe you're hanging out with too many critics and complainers and not enough hopers and doers. But ultimately, you're going to have to get to a place in your life, I think we're all called to be there, where we will have to sit in the midst of what is hard and find our strength in the Lord. I want to give you a couple of things from this passage as we round toward home that Paul says here. The first thing he says, he talks about from death to life. Look with me. Here you will. You're ahead of me. Paul says this, and it's odd. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. See that last phrase? So death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Can I tell you what that means? I've studied it. I've done the hermeneutics, the exegetical work. I'm telling you, here's what it means. If you see a church or ministry or any endeavor that's bringing life to other people, you will see one person or a few people who are dying. Their life is on the altar. They're not being conformed to the patterns of this world. They're not letting the world squeeze it into its mold. And they're sacrificing themselves in a great way. And Paul is saying... That's the role of the minister. But for anything to flourish, for other people to be brought life, there must be some, some who are dying. 
The greatest thing for an organization, for a church in particular, is not strategy or vision, it's self-sacrificing love. I pray that for you. Pray that for me. I pray that for our leadership here. What's, what's, what's Paul mean by all this talk of death and then life? What's he saying here? A prerequisite. Death is a prerequisite to the resurrection. There's a pattern, and it's true for both our salvation. Hear me, church, I'm dropping some theology. It's true for your salvation, and it's true for our sanctification. And some of us just want it for our salvation. And Paul would say to the church at Colossae, he would say in Colossians chapter 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Therefore, put to death. Put to death what? Put to death a lot. Look at what Jesus taught in John 12, verse 23 to 25. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Hear, Hear me out. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and it dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Keep that on the screen. Historian and scholar Ken Bailey says the following about this. His commentary on says, there's two really enduring, enduring real revolutions in world history. And the first, think back to prehistoric times, We don't have any of this on YouTube, but think back to prehistoric times when folks just were nomadic. They wandered from place to place. And some man or some woman one day discovered a corollary, really critical corollary. They dropped a seed in the ground. And when you drop a seed in the ground, what happens? Everybody understands when you drop anything in the ground, the idea is to bury it. Some of you have gotten together because you've had conflict and you said, what, let's, what? let's bury the hatchet. What's the idea there? Hey, we, you said something, I said something, we've done something, you know, let's just, let's bury the hatchet. And the idea there is let's just put it in the ground and be done with it. When you throw seed in the ground, as the prehistoric nomadic people did, somebody at some point realized that that seed, they stuck around and they realized the corollary, that that seed that was dropped through the ground became something green. It was a green shoot that came through the rough dirt or the, probably the fertile soil. And that changed everything for everyone. What a, what a revolution to realize that we don't have to wonder. We don't have to be nomadic people going from place to place that uh, we, things can change. And when something drops into the ground, what happens? It, it grows. It grows a tree or a plant, and that tree or plant yields fruit. It's no longer just getting life. What is it doing? It's giving life. That's the teaching. And how has it changed human history? Thank God it has. It's changed human history by allowing people to plant to plant the seed, but to plant themselves. It's, it's l- lended itself to arts and crafts and civilization and tools and art and architecture, to hometowns, to the grove and the junction and places that you and I love. We can l- be here. This is home for me. But the second revolution is the Jesus revolution. And Jesus is saying to us in parable form, He's saying to us, you think that life is about this. But let me tell you, to really have a life, you have to have a death. And what 
burial teaches is gone and done away with, actually, if, and to the end of the earth is actually your glory. What you think is your ending is your beginning. To try to save your life is to lose your life. But to lose your life, to die to yourself, to take up your cross, to daily follow him, it's life. And Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, death to life. If we had a casket in front of us, as the imagery, what would you put in that casket? What, what needs to die? What needs to die in your life? The first part of 2 Corinthians 4, Paul talks about renouncing secret and shameful ways, about living in the darkness. He talks about being open ministers, about living a life where we don't have so many walls built up. In 1 Corinthians 9, 27, a few chapters before this, in his first letter to the church at Corinth, they needed to hear this. He said, I beat my body daily. I make it a slave. And he was probably piggybacking on the words of Cicero, one of the thinkers in the Greco-Roman world, who, who said, reason should direct, appetite should obey. And Paul would later say, to another church, he would say, referring to people who are godless, that their, their God is their appetite. It's their stomach. They just do whatever they want, whenever they want. And let me ask you, do you know anyone? If you, I don't know if you've ever traveled that road of hedonistic pleasure or whatnot, but do you know anybody who's traveled down that road who can later look back and say, this is it. Real freedom is doing whatever you want, whenever you want. Just follow your appetites. It's good in the moment. It's good in the short run, but it's no way to live. Paul says, I daily beat my body to make it my slave. What do you need to die to? Let me give two, cite two quick examples. Ephesians 4.2 says that we ought to be, oh, we ought to be completely humble and gentle. Ouch. Do you know anybody that needs to grow a little bit in the humility development area? Do you? Be completely humble humble and gentle. We need to die to ourselves. He says in Romans chapter 12, let your love be sincere. What does that mean? Don't be fake. No rumors, no gossip. Don't be the person who praises someone to their face and acts all nice and then you resent them secretly behind their back. Let love be sincere. What are we doing as a church to eliminate insincerity in this place? There are things that need to die. Today, I'm inviting you to be on that journey, to picture a casket, to think of your own life and what needs to die because the only way to live. You see, the death and resurrection is not just a metaphor and it's, it's a man, the only one who predicted, predicted his death and pulled it off, who gives life to us. But Paul uses this to say, hey, with your salvation, there's also your sanctification. There's a way, and it's not the way of the world. Death to life, another metaphor he uses as I close, is one of, the, one of the passages that some of you probably know by heart. You've memorized it, or maybe you knew a Christian band back in the 90s. But we carry this, what, this treasure in jars of clay. You see, he's saying to us, there's the container you and I are the container. The treasure is the content. And you're going to lose heart and I'm going to lose heart if we think it's about the container. Because can I tell you, it's never about the container. 
It's about the contents. It's about the treasure. Every given away some items. Some of you rallied around Fondren Church to help out. We will go in downtown Jackson for a few weeks in a row. Some of you brought clothing and articles and put it behind your car as some of our folks came on golf carts and picked them up. We had some little kids doing that. They don't know about child labor laws. Don't tell them. But they picked up some of these clothes and we took them to We Will Go. But you know, We Will Go and, and the Goodwill Industries and places like that, they say that they're looking for gently used clothing. And I want to say to you, according to what Paul is teaching here in this great chapter on resiliency, you and I are anything but gently used. We're rugged, ragged, torn. We're frail, fragile. We're broken. And the good news is, God wants to use the overlooked, the undervalued, the left out, and the written off. Because in this world, the things that are broken, items that are broken, lose their value. They make it to a trash heap. I wonder Paul, if Paul had in mind, because he was so scholarly, I wonder if he had in mind uh, words penned years before him by the prophet Jeremiah, where God tells Jeremiah, some of you know this, God tells the prophet Jeremiah to go to, go to the potter's house. Uh, go to the potter's house, and at the potter's house, sit and await instructions. And Jeremiah followed the instructions of the Lord and he waited, but he noticed this potter over a wheel and the, the, the clay and the water was mixing and swirling. And this potter, his frail old fingers messed up, messed up the jar. Here's what God says in Jeremiah. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall know, oh, wrong passage. It's Jeremiah 18, 6. Jeremiah 18, 6, we'll get there. But anyway, God says, some of you know this, that the Lord, what, he is the potter and we are the clay. And God gives us this beautiful imagery that he will, he will stand over us. And that's the, the passage that God gives, that he stands over us. And what beautiful, beautiful imagery that God the potter looks at us and he sees the damaged and the broken. And he says, you are useful in my hands. When we think we need to throw away, when we think that we are to be discarded, that that dream has been dashed, that there is no hope, that we are losing heart, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Let's pray.